6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. So there's no genealogy recorded, is basically what I mean. It doesn't mean he didn't have parents. It just means it's not, they're not recorded. They're not relevant to the, the, the perspective of the writer here. And uh, he had no predecessor. He'll have no successor, is the idea. There are six similarities, at least, between Melchizedek and the Messiah. Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. He was king of Salem. And, and the last part of his name, Zedek, is a Jebusite dynastic name. And then Joshua encounters that without an Isaiah, or the Lord of Righteousness. But he's also a priest. He's a king and a priest. And that makes him distinctive. The only other one you find in the Bible like that is Jesus Christ. One can argue that we are, or we have the opportunity to be, rule with him and be a king and priest as, we are, as the 24 elders announce themselves as being in Revelation 5. But that's a whole other thing. His name and title mentions the two things about his reign, righteousness and peace. And these two characteristics are also mentioned of the reign of the Messiah. And you all remember this from your Christmas cards, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, and so forth. So, okay. A second similarity the Melchizedekian priesthood issued in blessing in that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So the fact that it, both are a source of blessing. Now how the Messiah's priesthood will be a source of blessing is going to be discussed later in this chapter, so I won't spend time on it now. Third thing, the giving of tithes is a recognition of superiority. You don't give tithes to someone junior, you give tithes to someone senior spiritually. Okay, So Abraham, by tithing to Melchizedek, was acknowledging or recognizing Melchizedek's positional superiority. Are we together so far? And it's, it, and it's, this, it's at this point in verse 2 that he also, uh, the writer explains the meaning of the names. But see, the fact that Jesus functions as a Melchizedekian kind of priest shows his superiority over any other priesthood. And he's going to develop this here with, Levit with uh, Levi in a minute. Melchizedek was an independent high priest, as is Jesus. His priesthood was individual in that he appeared on the scene, and this, all we know about him is that he was a priest of the Most High God. There's no mention of mother or father, genealogy. Genealogy was not relevant to Melchizedek. It's very relevant to the Aaronic priesthood because the way you became a priest under, in, uh, under the Levitical system is you had to be a descendant of Aaron, okay? And so, ancestry was not important for Melchizedek, and that's part of what's going on here. The appointment to Melchizedek's priesthood was independent of human relations, no genealogical requirement. That's not true of being a priest in the Levitical system, because unless you could prove that you were a descendant of Aaron, you were disqualified from the priesthood. And there were several times when they returned from Babylon, the Babylon captivity, 
Many claimed to be uh, the office of priesthood, but some could not prove that they had direct descendants of Aaron and were thus disqualified. You had to be a Kohen, a Kohenim, which is a descendant of Aaron. Okay. The fourth one of the genealogy is not important for the Melchizedek priesthood. And, and by the way, there's no record, this is interesting, there's no record of birth or death of Melchizedek. That doesn't mean he didn't, he wasn't born, didn't die. That's not what he, it's not recorded. And that means as a type, it, that's significant. Because we're dealing with a model here, an anticipatory type. See, both events occurred. He obviously was born, he died. But the fact there's no record of him allows the Holy Spirit to use this as an exemplar, as an illuminating example of what he's really getting at. The Melchizedek, Melchizedekian priesthood was timeless. We don't know when it began, when it ended. A Levitical priest served very definitively from the age of 25 to the age of 50 and had to be replaced. And had, it had a definite beginning and definite end. There's no mention of the beginning or end of the Melchizedek uh, priesthood. And uh, so in that sense, the Holy Spirit saying Melchizedek was like a model or a type of the Son of God. And because as far as the record of the Word of God is, it, Melchizedekian priesthood was timeless and there's no record of it ending. Now, the Melchizedekian priesthood was all-inclusive that it administered apparently to everyone within that region. It wasn't just Jewish. The Levitical priesthood was limited to, had a limited ministry just to Israel. That's another difference. What's Jesus Christ's ministry? Just to Israel? No. Universally. And uh, uh, Melchizedekian Mel priesthood was universal, so it was Christ. Jesus also has a universal priesthood. Now, because of this background, the, whole, the writer is using this to make a rhetorical example, uh, communicate. That's led to speculations. That because there's no recorded birth or death, some think Melchizedek was Shem. Shem was still alive then, in Abram's time. So is it possible that he was Shem? No, I don't think so, because we know Shem's genealogy. That would puncture the model, if you will. Was Melchizedek an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ? There are many speculators who say, well, that was Christ in the Old Testament making an appearance, because they get confused. They're confusing the type with the antitype. Was he a theophany, that is, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? Don't think so, for a lot of reasons. His priesthood, the, the, what Hebrews points out, his priesthood was after the similitude of Melchizedek, Christ was. Well, was Melchizedek a celestial being? No, he's described as a man in, in uh, Hebrews 7.4. So those popular speculations are punctured if you stick with the text. What about this business, the most popular one is that somehow it's a pre-incarnate Christ. The text does not use the adjective that would describe Melchizedek in his being in, in uh, essence to be like the Son of God. Instead, it uses a participle, meaning that Jesus was similar to Melchizedek only in the likeness of the, of the biblical statement. In other words, the grammar would suggest otherwise. The word for being made in the Greek is to cause a model to pass off an image or shape like it, to express itself in it to copy, to produce a facsimile. We shouldn't confuse the facsimile from the real thing is, is what the grammar is indicating. And this term is found only here in the New Testament. Second reason, it states that Melchizedek was like the Son of God. It does not say that he was the Son of God in the Old Testament. A third reason, the second passage where he is mentioned, that's in Psalm 110 verse 4, distinguishes Melchizedek from the Messiah. That also argues against 
them being the same. One of the prerequisites for the priesthood was that the priest had to be human. A priest had to be a representative of humanity, so it had to be human. So at this point, back there in Genesis 14, Christ wasn't qualified because he wasn't born of the virgin yet to be human. You with me? So he may appear occasionally in the Old Testament in what they call a theophany, but that's not, Melchizedek was not one of those. Jesus did not become a man until incarnation where he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. So before that time, he appeared in the form of a man, but was not an actual man. It's an important point. Just as it's important to understand that Christ was God, you also need to understand Christ was man. In the early church, one of the Gnostic heresies was that, he, well, he wasn't really a man. No, no. Both attributes of Christ are essential, God and man, together. It's going to be very important to us, especially as we get further in this chapter. Fifth reason that, that Melchizedek could not have been a theophany is that theophanies appeared and disappeared. They held no long-term office. All through the Old Testament, there's an appearance like a man, uh, and, and they call those theophanies, uh, but they come and they go. They don't hold office and assume those kinds of responsibilities. The Melchizedek of Genesis 14 was a king of a city-state of Jerusalem which required a position and a permanent residency. Theophanies never held a position. They were always short and temporary for ad hoc manifestations. Okay. So we know that Melchizedek was a living historic personage. Now he wasn't an origin thought. That was one of the great theologians in the early centuries. He was not an angel. Some of the Jews said he was Shem, the son of Noah. He was probably Shemitic, but not Canaanite origin. The last independent representative of the original Shemitic population, which had been vanquished by the Canaanites, Ham's descendants. So the greatness of Abraham then lay in the hopes, uh, lay in hopes of, of Melchizedek, the highest and last representative of the Noah, Noahic covenant, as Christ was the highest and ever enduring representative of the Abrahamic. Okay, that's... Background we don't really need here, I guess. Let's keep moving. The Holy Spirit is using as a way of communi- all this as a, communica- a way of communicating by Jesus Christ in Psalm 110, verse 4. And we'll see that quoted here in a minute. That Jesus Christ would be after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, and that his reign would be forever. Christ could not be after uh, Aaron because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi, for one thing. Jesus Christ supersedes the key point of this whole thing is that Christ supersedes the Aaronic priesthood, which means that he also supersedes the law. And that's an issue that to this day uh, troubles and clouds many that are in the Messianic movement. Because you get enamored with the whole Jewishness of it all, and it's fascinating, but you want to be careful, don't go back under the law. That's what this epistle is all about. Beginning of days and our end of life. You see, that Levitical priesthood had a limit. Melchizedek did not have. And Jesus will reign forever. Melchizedek is definitely a type, a hint, or a model, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. That's the way the Holy Spirit's using that piece of history. And that's all derivative from Hosea 12.10, where God says, I have also spoken by the prophets, I have multiplied visions, I have used similitudes. And under that, you can call them allegories, uh, analogies. There are over 200 figures of speech used in the Scripture. And they're cataloged and indexed for you in some of our materials. I have used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. So the Holy Spirit in the text does indulge in similitudes. And he also indulges in puns, deliberate connotative transfers, and what have you. 
There's another thing that I just thought I'd insert here that I think is kind of fascinating. All through the Old Testament, you find brides used as a type of the church. Adam had Eve. He loved her, and because he loved her so much, he in effect gave himself for her that through that offspring came the redemption. Isaac had Rebekah. And when Eliezer goes to get a bride for Isaac, he takes ten camels, and there's a whole parallelism there that's worth studying. Joseph had Asenath. Moses had Zipporah. Solomon had Rahab. Rahab was the harlot that helped the spies at Jericho. She is the mother of whom? Anyone? Boaz. Good for you. And Boaz has Ruth. Remember, he takes a Gentile bride. Here are six examples of a Gentile bride as a type, if you will, of the church, or can, can be considered that way. What's fascinating about this observation is none of these have their death recorded. I'm not saying they didn't die, but their death's not recorded. Why isn't it recorded? Well, perhaps it's not recorded because that would puncture the type. Because what's the seventh one? The seventh bridegroom is Christ. The seventh bride is the church. And it doesn't face death. So the model, it's, what I'm going to suggest, see, it, to, the, to the Greek mind, that's most of us, prophecy is prediction and fulfillment, prediction and fulfillment, prediction and fulfillment. To the Hebrew mind, prophecy is pattern. The Hebrew scholars study patterns because they see in the patterns of the Messiah, they see the history of Israel and vice versa, and so on. So it's interesting that in the Old Testament, these patterns, it's amazing to me how carefully the Holy Spirit shepherds the patterns. When you have Abram offering Isaac, it's fascinating. Abram offers Isaac, and 2,000 years later on that very spot, another father offers his son. What's interesting when you study Genesis 22 when you get to Genesis 24, again, Abraham sends his servant, Eliezer, to get a bride for Isaac, right? And uh, it's interesting, when you go back to Genesis 22, and after the offering of Isaac, the ram is substituted, it says, Abraham went down, the two young men and the three of them, Abraham the two young men went back home. Three-day journey. Where's Isaac? He's obviously went down with him and went home, but that's not what it says. Abraham and the two young men went home. And you discover when you examine it, Isaac, the person of Isaac, is edited out of the record until he's united with his bride two chapters later. So the Holy Spirit's even superintending the subtleties of the text so it fits the model. So I think that kind of thing is fascinating. Anyway, let's move on. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. You need to understand how the Jewish mind venerates Abraham. And here's a guy that Abraham, the patriarch of all, when, when, when Matthew does his genealogy as a Jew, he starts with Abraham. Because he's the first Jew in that sense, right? Well, even Abraham gives spoils to even patriarch Abraham. And this is, to, this is to emphasize that there were priesthoods greater than Aaron's before Aaron even existed. See, the writer is trying to get the Jewish mind to recognize that there are boundaries and limitations to Judaism because the, the readers of this epistle have been freed from those boundaries. They don't go back to them. There were other priesthoods, by the way, hinted at in the Scriptures. In Genesis 28, we find Jacob at Bethel giving tithes. It doesn't say to whom. 
Who are they giving tithes? We don't know. doesn't say. But there's obviously a priesthood receiving tithes from Jacob. This is long before, you know, uh, uh, you know, Aaron and all that. When Moses is in Midian, who's his father-in-law? Jethro. Jethro twice is mentioned as what? The priest of Midian. Well, that's interesting. What priesthood is that? Don't know. It just hangs out there. Anyway, let's move on. And verily they that are the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. The, the, the writer here is going to indulge in a very rabbinic kind of logic. Because Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, Levi hadn't been born yet. So Levi is viewed as being in the loins of Abraham, and thus Levi is sub subordinate to Abraham, and Abraham is subordinate to Melchizedek. That's the argument. It sounds weird at first, because Levi ain't around yet. Yes, he is. He's in the loins of Abraham, you see. So they came out of the loins, the Levites did. Levi was born to Abraham because he was still in his loins, genealogically speaking. It goes on, but he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So in other words, Melchizedek is senior to Abraham, and that's a tough thing for a Jewish mind to accept at this point here, whose descent is not counted from them. Abraham had promises, so that's precious, but it's Melchizedek that blessed Abraham. That makes Abraham subordinate to Melchizedek, as the lesser always gives tithes to the greater, who in turn blesses the lesser. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. He that liveth means, of course, Jesus Christ. Men that die receive tithes means Levi. He died, and so did his descendants who also served that office. By the way, this verse also implies that Melchizedek himself, personally, did die. It's not recorded because that would break the model, but he obviously didn't live forever. That's the point. Okay. As I may say, say Levi also who receiveth tithes prayed, paid tithes into Abraham, and he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So that's basically uh, the same thing re reiterated. Understand in the Old and New Testament, the word father can mean grant. It, it doesn't mean a direct ascendant. It can be grandfather. It can be great grand. The same term is used. A grandfather would be called father. A great, 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 great grandfather is a father. It's a, it's, we use the term descendant to be ambiguous. So-and-so descended from so-and-so. You don't know if it was immediate or ten generations later. Do you follow me? Well, it works the other way too. The language uh, doesn't have a word for it. They don't have the word like we have in English, grandfather, and so forth. There's no exact word. So the word father does not mean a direct son, but simply a, a, a pre predecessor. If therefore perfections were by the Levitical priesthood, so you're going to point out the Levitical priesthood is imperfect. This is the main thing the writer's going to get across. It's a very delicate subject to a Jewish mind. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? In other words, if the Levitical priesthood was adequate, why would there be another one? See? Why should another priest rise after? Okay. Understand the link between the Levitical priesthood and the law. They go together. They go together. And here he's referring, when he says the law, he's referring to the Torah, the five books of Moses. He's saying that if perfection were possible by the Levitical priesthood, 
What further need would there be for a priest after this earlier order, the order of Melchizedek? See, Psalm 110 says, promising Christ, you're going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Why is it under Aaron? Because Aaron's imperfect, this one's perfect. That's the whole point. The Aaronic priesthood is superseded. And this is a very delicate subject, which runs the risk of offending Jewish believers. He is going to highlight and point out that the Levitical priesthood was imperfect, incomplete, and temporary, and destined to be superseded. It never gave redemption and acceptance before God to the people. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He not only fulfilled, but He also superseded the Levitical priesthood. That's the, that's the key point that this writer is approaching somewhat delicately because he's built... And it's interesting all the way through here, the writer is not arguing from any point of authority. His only authority is the text itself. His entire case is being built out of the Old Testament because he's dealing with a Jewish mind. Yes, I believe it is Paul, but he's not writing as apostle authoritatively. He's leading them to understand what their own scriptures that they already accept imply. That's a key point. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Wow. The Torah is changed. See, the Mosaic law belonged to the Aaronic priesthood where they offered bloody sacrifices. The Mosaic law and the Aaronic priesthood go together. They're linked. We are not under the Mosaic law. That's a tough thing for many people to swallow. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. And what is he talking about? Levi was the only tribe that represented the people before the altar of God. Kings and priests were separate under the Levitical tribal system. Melchizedek was not of any specific tribe. And from this point of view, neither is Christ, except he's from the tribe of Judah, of course. He of whom these things are spoken refers to Jesus Christ. He was the tribe of Judah, the royal line. And of course, to the Jewish mind, that's a contradiction. Royal versus priesthood, they're always supposed to be separate in the Jewish mind. That's what he's trying to get crawl over here. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood was required, and in Numbers 16 and 17, that's all uh, uh, dealt with. A uh, descendant of Aaron would serve from age 25 to 55, and then he's replaced. And many were dis disqualified for lack of proof when he got back from Babylon and Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7. That is a big issue. For it is yet more evident that, for, that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. Not Melchizedek, but one modeled after that, if you will. The modeler. It's, he's de dealing by an analogy here. And uh, there arises another priest. Now the word another in the Greek, see, when you, in the English, if, if somebody says, give me another pencil, there's something I don't know about that sentence. Do I want one exactly the same or one of a different kind? In the Greek, I've got two words. I've got the word heteros or alos. If I, ask, if I use the word alos, that means I want a pencil exactly like the one I just broke. See? If I say heteros, that means I want a different kind. Give me a red one or a green one or something. Follow me? In the Greek, when I ask for another, I can tell from the language whether it's another the same or another that's different. Give me another one. When I say it, when I, I would, when I say it that way, no, I don't want that one. I want a different kind. I don't want chicken eggs. I want goose eggs or something. See? Well, here, 
The word in the Greek is not ambiguous. The word is heteros, that it's another of a different kind, not another of the same kind, okay? There arises another priest, a priest of a different kind. And so this shows that the old priesthood was temporary. It was evident by what is spelled out in the preceding verses. And is yet far more evident that for that after the similitude of Melchizedek arises another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. Wow. See, the law is still carnal. It's fleshly. The law you can't keep, it's just there to show you that you can't keep it. That's what the book of Romans is all about. But rather, we're rather, after that, rather than the law of a carnal commandment, we're after the power of an endless life. Wow. And this is, this is a way of pointing out that the, that the law of God, the, that God gave after the flesh, ordained the Levitical priesthood and its succession by genealogy are linked together. Old versus, the old was based on the law which was outward. The new is based on inward power and is inward. The old system meant that man was a priest only because his father was a priest. Now, you know, if you were born as a descendant of Aaron, you were eligible to be a priest. And that resulted in some pretty dismal priests. Um, there, some, some, really, some really bad news. And uh, remember, Aaron, Aaron himself made a golden calf when pressured, right? And of course, Eli's sons, they were priests, but they were full of gluttony and immorality and what have you, 1 Samuel 2 and so on. Now, this one had been made. The Greek perfect tense emphasized the abiding nature. He has been made a priest and continues. He has been and forever will be, is the point, is the thought. In the case of Jesus, the basis was according to the power of an endless life. Jesus became a priest after his resurrection, and by virtue of his resurrection, he lives forever. So he's never to be replaced, in contrast to Aaron. And the writer suggesting that's all modeled, in a sense, from Melchizedek. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.